What's your view on baptism? Now, that's a pretty loaded question for any Christian. Hey guys, I'm William Dyer and this is Dyer Conversations. We're doing a mini series where we are looking at the role of baptism in the book of Acts as it is connected to the uh, conversion process. So with anything in Christianity, pretty much, you're going to have all sorts of different views. So what I'm asking you to do is come with me on this journey as we look at the book of Acts. So we're not going to look at the entire New Testament and its teaching on baptism. Uh, I think that that would take too long. That might take, you know, a year's worth of podcast. But we're going to specifically look at the book of Acts. And the reason why we're looking at the book of Acts is because it is a history of the early church. So after Jesus dies and he rises from the dead and he ascends back into heaven, we get this account in the book of Acts by Luke, who was a follower of Paul, the apostle. And he details the beginnings of the church, and uh, he has a bunch of conversion stories in there and a bunch of other details. So we're going to look at what does Luke present to us as far as the role that baptism plays in the conversion process, if it plays anything at all. And so, you know, if you're watching this, I'm going to kind of assume that you're going to fall into maybe one or two areas. You're either going to listen to this and be like, absolutely, this is 100% what I believe, or you're going to say, oh my gosh, this is off base. I can't believe this guy believes this. He's totally wrong. And that's fine. What I'm asking you to do is to set aside, you know, your theological beliefs on baptism just for a minute. And let's go into the text and listen to the quotes, listen to the exegesis I'm going to do and the points that I'm going to bring up. Just listen to them. And if you, you know, at the end, if you disagree, that's fine. Leave me some comments below. Let me know why you disagree, what you disagreed with, you know, what you think uh, the role of baptism is here in the book of Acts. And so as we start off here, again, we know this is a little bit controversial, which doesn't matter. I think we need to talk about these things. But there's two points I want to make that I don't think any Christian is going to disagree with. And the first point is that all Christians, according to the New Testament, have the gift of the Holy Spirit. So nobody should deny that. If you're a Christian, you read the New Testament, you should understand that all Christians have been giving the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. It is our promise, part of our salvation um, you know, package, if you want to use that word. Ephesians tells us that it is the seal for the day of our redemption. The second point I want to make is this, is that there is a command in the New Testament for those who place their faith in Jesus to be baptized. In case you don't uh, know of that, let me give you two verses, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. This is Jesus commissioning his apostles after his resurrection. It's a great commission. He tells them this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that the command here is to make disciples. That's the imperative in that verse. But you have some participles here, which are helping verbs. And one of those helping verbs is where he says, baptizing them. So one of the ways that you make disciples is by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 22, which you know we're going to get to a little bit later in this series, the Apostle Paul, before he actually became the Apostle, when he had his Damascus Road experience and he goes into the city, God tells him, hey, wait, there's a guy named Ananias who's going to come preach to you and tell you what you got to do. Ananias comes, and after he preaches to, to Saul, telling him that, hey, you've been persecuting Jesus, but Jesus is the Messiah, Ananias tells him this, why do you delay? 
Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so what we see here is that Jesus had commissioned the apostles, that baptism was part of making disciples. And we see Luke in the book of Acts gives us an example of somebody who is coming to faith in Jesus, and they are told to be baptized. So those are just basically two simple points I want to make before we get into this series, is that all Christians have the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and that there is at least some connection between the conversion process and baptism. The question really becomes, what is that connection, right? Is baptism something that a uh, repentant person does as part of their becoming a Christian? Is baptism the first initial act that a new convert is to participate in? Or is baptism, you know, this afterthought of something that you can just do later down the road and it's a public display of the inner working of the Spirit? I mean, these are beliefs that people have, that Christians have. But we want to look again back to what the Bible says, right? And I don't, again, I don't think that I'm going to be able to, you know, you know, display or dispel like all the different beliefs on baptism out there. That's not what I'm trying to do here. I just want to kind of go back into the book of Acts and begin to look at exactly what it says so we can refine our beliefs and maybe kind of throw off some of the traditions that we believe and get back to what the Bible says. Okay, one other preliminary consideration is this. As we look at the text of Scripture, whatever whatever we are studying— it is important that we don't practice something called eisegesis, which is reading into the text our theological beliefs rather than pulling out of the text what God is trying to uh, teach us. And so there's a professor named Robert Wall, and, and all these quotes I'm going to give you in, in basically every podcast I do. I try to give you some main um, line people, not people on the fringes, because you can find people that say whatever you want them to say about the Bible. Uh, but I'm trying to give you some some popular names of people who uh, most people know, so that you can understand that I'm not just pulling stuff from the fringes to try to create some sort of belief that that I want everybody else to believe. So Robert Wall, he's a professor of New Testament. Uh, it's in this book that I have on hermeneutics, which are the principles that we use to study the New Testament. And every chapter is written by a different professor, so it's a pretty pretty good basis to know like how you're supposed to study the Bible. Well, in his chapter, he writes this, quote, The careful interpreter is naturally sensitive to the citations, allusions, and even echoes of other subtext heard when reading a biblical text. So what he's saying there is that when you read the Bible, you should try to mature your thinking to a point where you are considering other things you know about the Bible, and maybe even what the author is trying to allude to if he doesn't come directly out and say, I'm referencing this verse, or I'm referencing this story. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because as we look here in the book of Acts, man, this is so important. I mean, I I studied the book of Acts recently this past year. I read a lot of different commentaries and different articles on it. And one thing that I felt like a lot of them were missing as they were talking about baptism and these different conversion experiences in the book of Acts was connecting them all together. You know, they were looking at just... Just this one episode, you know, Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 10 or Acts chapter 19, and they weren't looking at what is Luke doing throughout the entire book of Acts to connect all of these conversion stories together to show us how people became Christians uh, according to the gospel message that the apostles preached. And so I'll give you that quote to say, look, 
as we look at a few different uh, major conversion accounts in the book of Acts. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, and we might get to some others. We have to understand that they are connected. They don't contradict one another. It's not like, you know, one gospel message was preached to the guys in Acts 2 and a different gospel message was preached to the guy, you know, to Cornelius in Acts 10. That's not what Luke is doing. When you get to, let's say, Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius' house, Luke is expecting you to remember what he said in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 8 and in the other conversion accounts. All right? So don't read things in isolation. Keep them all in context. Acts chapter 2, this is the first um, you know, conversion account ever that we get, right? And it's the first one that we're going to look at here in this series. And so in Acts chapter 2, it's verses 14 through 47, where Peter and the apostles, they are gathered in Jerusalem. This is 50 days you know, after Jesus' resurrection. You have the Feast of Pentecost, the in-gathering feast where um, you know all these Jews are in Jerusalem, and you have this miraculous event happens where you can read this in the um, early section of Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles, and it says that, uh, you know, it's like a sound of mighty rushing wind and flames shooting out of their head, like, tongue, you know, tongues of fire shooting out of their head. And, of course, that's going to get a crowd, right? People are going to come in and be like, what is happening? So big crowd gathers, and they're like, what is going on? Are these people drunk? What is happening? And Peter takes a stand with the 11, Acts chapter 2, verse 14, and he begins to preach to the people. This is what this event means. Now, as he does this, this is this is what's interesting, okay? So, Richard Longnecker, in his commentary on the book of Acts, says that Acts chapter 2 is, quote, theologically normative. And then when you look at Acts chapter 8, which is the Samaritans coming to the faith, Acts chapter 10, Cornelius' house, the first Gentile coming to faith, Acts chapter 19, these are disciples of John who Paul came into encounter with, and then they came to faith in Jesus, he says those conversion accounts are historically conditioned and circumstantially understood. What's he, what's he saying there? His point is, when you get to the first gospel account here, Acts chapter 2, this is the foundation that Luke is laying so that we can understand all the other accounts that we get in the book of Acts. So we have to understand what is going on here, which is why I'm going to give you kind of more of a robust background on this conversion account than I will on the other ones, because this is the foundation on how we understand the rest of the conversion accounts in the book of Acts. So after this great event happens, and the crowd gathers, and they don't know what's happening, Peter's going to preach to them. I think it's important for us to understand. People uh, sometimes misunderstand what the point of the you know Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles, and the speaking in tongues, and the, and the flame of you know a fire shooting out of their head, you know, sound of the mighty rushing wind. What does this mean? Some people think that what it means is uh, it was the giving of the gift of the ability to do miraculous gifts to the apostles. I think that's off. Uh, we learn in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, it says this, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So back in the Gospels, we get an account where these guys were able to uh, have the ability to do exorcisms and heal people and even raise the dead. Um, we don't see that they were able to speak in tongues. That's kind of a different story, a sidebar study. 
But we do see that they have the ability to work miracles. So this event here in Acts chapter 2 is not about them getting the ability to do miraculous events. Instead, it's better to understand Peter in reference to the Old Testament verses that he quotes. So what he does in Acts chapter 2, verse 14 and following, is he cites Joel chapter 2. Without getting into a deep exegesis of that passage, I want to give you a quote by Ben Witherington III, again, a pretty popular name. Uh, he wrote a commentary on the gospel, or on the um, book of Acts, and he says this about Peter's use of Joel chapter 2. He says, The sign that the eschatological age has begun and that the promises of the Old Testament era are being fulfilled in the lives of those who follow Jesus. Now, eschatological era, that's a fancy term to mean the end times. Before you start thinking about what your understanding of the end times is, you have to understand in the context of the Jews here, their understanding of the end times was based on the Old Testament, not our teachings of what we you know, have come to know about what the New Testament says in reference to the end times. So in the Jewish mindset, the eschatological age was in reference to when the Messiah came and set up the um, the messianic kingdom, okay, without trying to unpack what that means in the millennial kingdom and all the different views there. But for the Jew, the eschatological age is when the Messiah came and he established the kingdom of God. And so Ben Witherington, what he's saying here is that what Peter is trying to get these Jews to understand is that this big event that they're seeing and that is happening, it is a sign by God that this messianic kingdom is now begun in some sense, right? It has begun. Now, I don't think that the messianic kingdom is fully established, but it has in a sense broken through. It has been inaugurated in, in some sort of way. And that these promises of the Old Testament, right, of the kingdom and of salvation and of benefits and, um, and of the Messiah coming and all that he would achieve, they are beginning to be fulfilled in the lives of those who follow Jesus. So why did God have this event happen in Acts chapter 2? Well, what he's doing is he's trying to authenticate the apostles. He's trying to um, let the Jews know that these apostles, these followers of this guy named Jesus, whom the Jews thought was a um, blasphemer, that these guys are actually God's messengers. And he wants to give a foundation for what Peter's about to preach to these Jews, he's about to, you know, cite to them a bunch of Old Testament verses and say, I understand that you thought that Jesus was a blasphemer and that he was a heretic, but actually he was the Messiah and you should have known it because look what the Old Testament says. All right. So he does that. Okay. We're not going to go through Peter's sermon. Peter quotes a bunch of Old Testament passages. Essentially the conclusion we find in, in Acts chapter two, verse 36, where he said, let all the house of Israel know that this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Messiah or Christ. So that's the point of Peter's sermon. Okay, here's where it gets interesting. So imagine yourself being one of these Jews. Imagine that you have killed this guy named Jesus, or at least supported the killing of him. You thought he was a blasphemer. You thought he was a heretic. You know, whatever bad thing you could think about. He was a criminal. Crucify him, right? And now you're seeing this sign, and you're going, oh, this was to fulfill Joel chapter 2, that in the last days God would pour forth his spirit on all mankind. And there's these other Old Testament passages that refer to the Messiah 
And yeah, I now see the connection that these were referring to what Jesus accomplished in his, in his passion, right? In his death, burial, and resurrection. And so in verse 37, it says, when they heard this, so when these, when these Jews heard Peter's sermon, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? I, I don't know how else you can take that besides that these guys are, are tacitly admitting and confessing that they agree with what Peter just said. They, they understand what he's saying. Yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. And then they make that connection, and we supported the killing of the Messiah figure, the one who is God's anointed, the one whom we have been waiting for as a nation for a very, very, very long time. They're admitting that, okay, we get it. So they were pierced to the heart, right? That's, that's the conviction. And they believe what Peter says about Jesus being the Messiah. But then they ask, well, what shall we do? Like, what, like what can, what, is there a sacrifice we can make, right? Like how many, how many bowls do we have to bring in order to let God forgive us of this thing? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, this is the first recorded instructions that we get of the apostles telling somebody who wants to follow Jesus, what do you do to respond to the gospel message? This is the first account of it. And in Acts chapter 2, 38, I'll read the verse for you. It says, Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, what we have here is two commands and then two promises. So repentance is the first command. And repentance is more than, you know, simply being sorry for something. Um, what really here we're looking at is a turning of your mindset and a turning of your life. I mean, that's what repentance means, right? It's like a, it's like a change. You're, you're changing direction. So instead of going this way where you were thinking Jesus was a blasphemer and you're going to, you know, follow after this sort of way of life, now you're going to change that. You understand Jesus is the Messiah, and you're going to follow after that way of life. So that's repentance kind of in a nutshell. It's not just, oh, I'm sorry for what I've done. It's also interesting, if you think about it in this context, that these guys, they're Israelites. They are God's people. They are the chosen people of God. And most likely, they've already been baptized, you know, under John the Baptist, you know, in his ministry. And none of that is enough anymore. You know, they, they've gotten to a point where the message is, unless you follow Jesus, you don't have the salvation of God. And so there's something else that they must do. And the second command here is, each one of you be baptized. So to make it clear, the commands in this verse are repentance and baptism. Both of those are in the imperative in the Greek text. And so F.F. Bruce Again, a, a very, very well-known scholar of the New Testament wrote in his commentary, the book of Acts. He says that baptism isn't new for the Jews, right? I mean, they had proselyte baptism or ceremonial washings, um, you know, in the Old Testament era, you know, if you will, Second Temple Judaism leading up to the time of Jesus. I mean, they had, um, you know, they had pools that they could go to and do these cleansings or these proselyte baptisms. Baptism isn't something new for the Jews, but there are two new features here in reference to what Peter is commanding these Jews to do in reference to baptism. And F.F. Bruce says that the two new features are, one, 
that it's in the name of Jesus Christ, right? Because what you're doing here is you're associating this washing with being in the name of Jesus. And most commentators would say that's going to mean something like you're coming under the authority of Jesus or you're uh, showing your association or identification with Jesus. And here in this context, it would mean that you understand Jesus is the Lord and the Christ, the Messiah. And so you are being baptized to associate with him in that way. The second feature that F.F. Bruce lays out is that there is now an association between baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because if you remember, John's baptism is said to be for forgiveness of sins, John the Baptist. But now Peter says that this baptism, Christian baptism, is in the name of Jesus, and it is associated with the gift of the Holy Spirit. So look at the verse again if you have your text in front of you. He says that each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's some sort of connection here between baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's a question for you. How can baptism have no connection whatsoever to forgiveness of sins? If Peter answers the question of forgiveness in this way, like this is what I've been trying to prime this whole time, is that these guys understood we crucified the Messiah. What should we do? And if baptism has no connection to that answer, why did Peter give it in this verse? Why did he even mention it? So if you're out there and you're listening to me right now and maybe you're uncomfortable because, you know, you're like, ah, this sounds like a workspace salvation and baptism, you know, isn't, again, just ask yourself this question. If there's zero connection between baptism and forgiveness, why did Peter answer the question in this way? I think that's something that you're going to have to answer if you're going to still hold your ver- or hold your view that baptism has no connection. And I'm not saying, believe me, I 100% agree that salvation is by grace through faith and through faith alone. Baptism is not uh, equated to faith. Baptism is not a, you know, you have faith and baptism for salvation. No, no, no. The Bible says very clearly that salvation comes by the grace of God through faith and faith alone. Again, we're not trying to read all of our theology back into the text, but we have to look at the text, say, what does it say, and then maybe tweak our theology to that. All right, so what's the, what's the big debate here, right? If we, as we look at Acts 2.38, it says you are to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and then there's this key word here, for. For, and then the promises, forgiveness of sins, and give to the Holy Spirit. This word for is the Greek preposition ice. And this Greek preposition, ice, is interpreted three main ways in this passage. So I'm going to give you the three ways and, and tell you which, which view is mine. So the first way to interpret ice is it's, in, it's equivalent to another preposition, in, E-N, in the Greek. And that preposition literally means in, I-N, uh, in English. But the way that you would translate it here, if you were to equate ice with in, is that we are to be baptized with reference to forgiveness. Now, you may ask yourself, well, what does that mean? Exactly. That's ambiguous, right? What does it mean to be baptized with reference to forgiveness? Does it mean to be baptized because with reference because my sins have already been forgiven because I believe? 
be be baptized with reference to forgiveness because I need to be forgiven. Be baptized in some sort of, you know, just super ambiguous reference to forgiveness that nobody can answer. I mean, that doesn't seem clear at all. So while grammatically it's a possibility to translate it that way, I think contextually it's off, and I think for the sake of making the passage clear, because Peter was pretty clear and these people understood him clearly of what they wanted to do or what they needed to do, that this isn't that great of an option. Now, this, and this is why people generally opt for one of the next two. So the second way that people try to translate ice in this passage is to translate it as because of. So be baptized because of the forgiveness of sins. That would mean that you hold the view that you need to be baptized because your sins have already been forgiven, right? It's the first act you do as a Christian um, to publicly display the inner work that the Holy Spirit has already done in your life. Well, there's a problem with that view. And the problem with that view is that grammatically, it's basically impossible to translate it that way. And if you, I'm not making this up. So I'm going to cite to you Greek scholar, one of the most famous Greek scholars on the face of the planet, Daniel Wallace. Daniel Wallace wrote the standard Greek um, intermediate text that is used in a lot of colleges to teach intermediate Greek. That is beyond the first year of Greek, you know, when you're learning like second and third year Greek and all the like really deep nuances of Greek, which by the way, I've, I've done all that. So I'm not like just speaking out of my, out of my head right now. Um, Daniel Wallace lists eight uses of the preposition ice. So here's eight standard uses of the preposition on a way that it could be translated. And then when you look at the context, you figure out which one of those is the best translation or grammatically certain ones can be ruled out as well. The point I'm making here is that he lists eight uses of ice and he does not use, he does not um, list the causal that is because of as a use of the preposition. In fact, in his text, in his intermediate Greek text, he has an entire section to this verse, Acts 2.38, and how ice is translated here. And he says, he says that the causal use of ice is not applicable to this verse, and it's probably not even a use that is applicable to the entire New Testament. He said it's doubted that you can even translate ice as because of in any New Testament text much less in Acts 2.38. But he still goes on to try to say, but it can't mean for, you know, forgiveness of sins because that would throw off our theology, blah, 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 blah. And so it's like, well, you're saying grammatically you can't do it, but theologically you're trying to force something there because you don't want it to say what it seems to clearly be saying. I don't know. He's an extremely smart man, but my point here is that he says you can't translate it as because of. Here's another reason why I know you can't translate translate it as because of. You find me a New Testament version that translates it that way. So I looked up the CSB, CEB, CEV, ESV, the HCSB, ISV, KJV, MEV, Mount's Reverse Interlinear New Testament, the NASB, the NET, the NIV, the NKJV, and the RSV, and none of them translate it as because of. Why don't they? Because you can't. Because grammatically it doesn't work. So what's the third way that you can translate ice in this passage? Well, the third way is the normal way. You know, the third way is the normal meaning of the preposition ice, and that is 
for the purpose of or a motion towards something, right? So the motion towards is forgiveness of sins. So you are moving towards the purpose or fulfilling the goal of getting the forgiveness of sins and gift of the Holy Spirit. Craig Keener, again, if you study the New Testament, you're probably going to hear of Craig Keener. I mean, he's a scholar of scholars. He writes books on everything in regards to the New Testament. And he has footnotes, so many footnotes on a page that he has more footnotes than actual you know, commentary. But he says in his commentary on the book of Acts that translating ice in Acts 2.38 as for the forgiveness of sins, as in for the purpose of forgiveness of sins, is far more likely than translating it in as because of. So again, I'm just showing you that grammatically, contextually, and you know all these uh, different commentators who are scholars are showing you you have to translate it as for for the purpose of forgiveness of sins and gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, one more point on the grammar here. This, if you if you read Greek or you know how to read Greek or maybe even you don't, but you can look this up. The exact same Greek construction that Luke uses here in Acts two thirty eight for for forgiveness of sins is the exact same words in the way it's spelled and everything is exactly the same that Jesus uses in Matthew 26, 28, when he taught, when he's at the, the last supper and he's instituting, you know, the last supper. And he says that he raises the cup and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Jesus didn't pour out his blood because sins were already forgiven. He poured out his blood so that we could have forgiveness of sins. That's the exact same phrase that Luke uses here in Acts 2.38. So not only the normal use of the word ice, the contextually and grammatically it works out that way, but even when you look in other parts of the New Testament, when that phrase is used, it's used to mean for the purpose of the forgiveness of sins. All right, so as we're kind of wrapping some things up here on this first uh, session, I want to just note that I know that grammatically and contextually, it's very clear, but theologically, it's troublesome for us, right? A lot of people, if, you, if you've stuck this far in this podcast, I know that, that most of you out there are going, I don't like where this is going. I don't agree with this. This doesn't sit well with me because you're kind of already forecasting what some of the conclusions are. So this is why I ask you to kind of hold off some of your thoughts, hold off some of your preconceived theological beliefs on baptism, and just let the text speak. If the text says that when we respond to the gospel, that we need to repent and be baptized, and that two of the promises are forgiveness of sins and gift of the Holy Spirit, then let the text say that. And we need to kind of twist our theology to, to fit that versus then twisting that to fit our theology. But let me show you what happens when you don't do it the right way. So I'm going to give you three quotes here uh, by, you know, New Testament writers, scholars, whatever, of when they see the implications of this and they don't want to accept it. So David Peterson wrote the um, the commentary for the Acts of the Apostles in the Pillar Commentary series. And Pillar Commentary is like a pretty well-known standard commentary series for the New Testament. So you got to be pretty good to write a commentary in that series. And he says that he admits that baptism is said to be for the forgiveness of sins in Acts 2.38. But then 
he attempts to get around the conclusions of that by saying, quote, it's not always explicitly mentioned in this sort of connection in the rest of the book back. So what he's saying is, okay, in Acts 2.38, it seems pretty clear that baptism is connected to forgiveness of sins. Like, you get baptized so you can get forgiveness of sins. But he goes, but we don't want to conclude that because if you look at the rest of the book of Acts, you see people getting forgiveness and there's no mention of baptism. I understand where he's coming from, but that's why I started this series off by saying you need to take these things not in isolation, but understand them in connection to each other. Because Luke doesn't want you to forget this episode when you read the other episodes. So when we get to those other episodes, we're going to talk about them and we're going to say it doesn't contradict Acts chapter 2. Warren Wearsby, um, he's kind of like a, a preacher sort of comment, commentary uh, commentator. He writes a lot of smaller books, really good stuff as far as like preaching material. And he wrote um, a little commentary set on Acts called Be Daring. What I found interesting when I was looking at his comments on Acts 2.38 was he completely misquoted the verse. Like, I, I'm not trying to, I, I like Warren Wearsby. Like, I like his stuff a lot. I find it very devotionally good for my soul. When I read this, I was like, Mr. Wearsby, like, did you, how did you not quote the verse correctly? Like, could you not bring yourself to quote it correctly because you didn't want the clear implications to come out? Like, I don't want to read some bad motives into him, but I'm like, how did you, how did you do that? So he says this. He says that Peter told the crowd, quote, quote, repent of their sins and believe on Jesus Christ, end quote. That's, that's not what Peter said to the crowd. Peter never said, believe on Jesus. He had already told them that before Acts 2.38. So this is not him summing up the entire chapter. He's saying, this is what Acts 2.38 says. And so when you read commentaries like this, it's like, if you're not going back to the text and looking at it for yourself, you might miss that. And I just found that really amazing. And then he goes on to say, baptism can't have any connection to forgiveness of sins. He says, because the saints in Hebrews 11 weren't baptized. And, and I'm like, how could you possibly be that off of understanding biblical theology? And I mean, I say that with all due respect to him, because I know that the man loves the Lord, and I really like him and his commentary stuff. But come on, of course the people listed in Hebrews 11 weren't baptized because they were Old Testament saints. They couldn't be baptized because baptism, regardless of what you think baptism is for, in the New Testament, baptism is about Jesus and being connected to his death, burial, and resurrection. That's Romans chapter 6 and being baptized in the name of Jesus, right? How could the Old Testament saints like Abraham be baptized in the name of Jesus? I mean, come on, man. Like, you got to make a better point than that. If you, you know, I mean, okay, maybe he's right and I'm wrong, but his point about Hebrews 11 is so far off base, it's, it's unbelievable at points. All right, but again, I love the man. I think he's, his stuff is great. Please don't think that I'm saying don't read his stuff. I just thought that was pretty crazy. All right, Ben Witherington, we've quoted him a couple times. His commentary on Book of Acts, he admits that repentance, faith, baptism, the name of Jesus, and the reception of the Spirit were all important elements, so I'm quoting him, were all important elements when the matter of what we must do 
or how people enter the community of Christ comes up. So he basically says, look, when you look at the book of Acts and you think about, you know, hey, what do you do to be connected to the Christian community? You find things like repentance, faith, baptism, name of Jesus, reception of the Spirit, right? These are all elements that are important, and you can't say one is not important, the other one uh, is more important. But then he concludes, as he says, basically his argument is, but we don't want to think baptism is part of the initial coming to faith because you don't see that pattern throughout the rest of the book of Acts, which is kind of what David Peterson was saying. And he says, quote, God can do it however God wants to do it, end quote. Yeah, God can do it. But when God does it a certain way, and we see a pattern of how God does it, then we can rightly display that pattern in the way that we do it today because, well, God wants us to obey him, right? So my point here is this. What people do is they get hung up because they read things in isolation. They're going to read the rest of the conversion accounts in the book of Acts in isolation and not in connection to all of them. And so what we want to do in this series is look at them all together and see how they're all connected and see how Luke has laid a foundation here in Acts 2, and that's going to carry to the other ones in Acts 8, 10, and especially in Acts 19. So again, hey, if you disagreed with us, with what I said here, thought I misspoke, you have some other point you want to make, leave a comment. Uh, outside of that, make sure to check out the other episodes in this series to see what is the role of baptism uh, in the conversion process throughout the book of Acts. Until the next time, Continue to seek the truth.